now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode eight of the Forensic Advancement season, Just Science interviews Ron Smith. Smith is a 45-year veteran of latent print analysis and the current president of Ron Smith & Associates, a Mississippi-based company that provides training, consulting, and proficiency testing services to the forensics community. Over the last 30 years, Smith has witnessed a shift in the role of the forensic scientists in the criminal justice system. He believes that being an expert witness, exhibiting fairness, and staying current are now the most important parts of being a forensic scientist. Listen in as he discusses this shift in more detail and the direction the field of forensic sciences is headed in this installment of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. With me today is an icon of the forensic science community, Mr. Ron Smith of Ron Smith and Associates, the president of that firm and who's built it up, as the name implies, from nothing into one of the most important training and certification providers in forensic science. We're very, very fortunate to have Ron on the program here today. Welcome. Well, thank you, John. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to be here. So, Ron, I, uh, I, I didn't know what the number was. 45 years of experience in latent print crime scene and lab management practices. Mm, John, that makes me feel so old, but you know, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that when I was coming down the hallway. I said, how many years has it been? Yeah, it's a little over 45. That's true. There you go. And still but, going uh, strong. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I enjoy it as much now as I ever have. Sure. Uh, because forensic science is so exciting and it's changing all the time. And if you're willing to embrace the changes, uh, then you've got a new uh, adventure coming around every corner. Well, one of the cool things about what you're doing is you've really transformed a lot of how the training is done, especially in latent print analysis is what you're known for, but you've really extended that into other areas as well. I mean, what was it like, uh, you know, 45 years ago when somebody was trying to become a latent print examiner? There was only one way, and that was to work as an apprentice with a qualified examiner. Uh, there were very few schools at all. The FBI did teach at the uh, FBI Academy a three-week school. It was about the longest school there was available. So other than online courses, there was almost nothing in the uh, public sector to attend. When I started training externally from my own agency back in the mid-80s, I realized this is a huge void. And I just tried to start figuring out ways that would fill as much of the void as I could. Up until the point when I retired from the state crime lab in Mississippi, which was in 2002, and then I went full bore into developing a company that could uh, fill as much of that void as possible. It was tough back in those days, though. If you had a good trainer, you could become a great print examiner. If you didn't, the scary thing is you didn't know you weren't. It really was a kind of a pedigree thing. It almost had to be. So there were a bunch of people doing latent print examination who didn't have the appropriate training. They didn't have the right mentor to try to apprentice them along. And who knew, really, who was a really good examiner and who wasn't? Well, therein lies the rub, as they say. Nobody knew. There was a lot of what I would call poor forensics practiced back in those days with smaller agencies particularly 
that didn't have any standards to work under and didn't have any best practices. They just did it the way they'd always done it. And many times that would arrive at exactly the correct answer, but sad to say many times it didn't. And those went undiscovered quite often for years and years. One of the challenges you've had, and I just appreciate this a little bit because I've been in a bunch of different places, you know, around the forensic science community. I've been in government. I've done some work in consulting with commercial folks and now, of course, at RTI. It's not an easy place to do business, and especially the training budgets aren't what you'd like it to be. But you've gotten to the point where there's a way for folks that come to, to you and really get top-notch training. It must have been a challenge to get that started. Well, it was. The key to it was identifying the particular training needs and then making sure that I found the very best instructors available in the country to do that. Because you had to bring recognition to the training before you were going to have agencies willing to spend the money mm -hmm. to send their people out of state or wherever it happened to be. So that combination of getting the right topic and then getting the right instructor and make sure you vetted that instructor was the key to success early on and still is. Mm -hmm. I mean, we focus on that constantly. We get many, many requests for people who would like to be trainers. And then when you get a videotape on them, you realize mm -mm, it's not going to work. So we've been very fortunate to develop relationships with some of the best instructors in the country in the topics that we teach, and that has grown. And we took that even a step further back a few years ago and actually created a national academy for latent print examiners that we host in Mississippi where they come in and spend literally about 22 weeks with us straight. And we do give them a little break for Christmas and Thanksgiving. But, <laughs> it's nice uh, that you give them a day or two. Yeah, right? we'll give them a day or two off, and it's intense. <laughs> Those people that come through that National Academy actually are ready to go back and go on supervised casework when they get home. The reason most laboratories it takes so long to train forensic examiners is not because the training itself has to be that long. It's just that you don't have trainers on staff that can just do nothing but train. Mm -hmm. So you take your bench examiners, you go back and forth, they train a couple of days, they go back work cases a couple of days. And that's why I believe, having been a crime lab manager myself for many years, that training programs are so long, they're just not condensed enough to cut the time down. So yeah. we found a way to do that at least one time <laughs> in latent <laughs> prints in that field, and we're getting ready to start others as well. So there's a lot of young people who are interested in forensic science generally, but there's also this kind of thing where once they experience the reality of it, it's very different from what they see on TV. And the other thing that's going on now is you have a lot of folks, especially in latent prints, who've been doing it a long time, and they're not going to be wanting to do it in five or ten oh, years. Oh, no. Yeah, the baby boomers, they have retired except for me. Like <laughs> I'm the last one. And because of that, the void has just expanded. We can't keep up mm -hmm. uh, with training new examiners. Interestingly, you mentioned about the college students. And I certainly am in favor of advanced degrees. Always have been. But we find now the competition uh, in forensic science entry-level jobs is so great that they feel like with a BS degree they can't even compete, so they must go get a master's degree, and then they realize they're still in a big pool sure. having to you know, get selected. So you know, we've had some people that have come to us and said, hey, you know, if I have a BS degree and it's in a science and I can pass the visual acuity test that you require, would you be willing to take us on without a job? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've had every student who's come through that was self-funded gets many offers of employment. 
I would think so. I mean, yeah, be, that's, that's better than a master's even. degree, really, because the key of it is you want to sit them down and get them doing casework. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and they can do that. So that's been an interesting development that I've noticed. But our regular training program, by that I mean the one that we travel and teach all over the country and many other countries, has just consistently grown over the years. And as long as you take the training close enough to them, doesn't have to be in their hometown, but close enough to their region of the company, they will come. It's almost like prisons. If you build it, they will come. Sure. The one thing that I really would love to hear from you is your view, because there's, of course, a lot of heat and light being shed onto impression evidence now, including into latent print examination. There's uh, talk about cognitive bias, human factors, there's talk about quantitation of certain elements of it. Where do you think the field is going? Where do you think it should go? Well, that's two very good questions. It's not going fast enough for me. I'm not afraid of science. Mm -hmm. As a latent print examiner that did not have a science degree, my education was in different areas, but I'm not afraid of science because I believe in the foundations of what our practice is based on. So I think science is simply going to be a way to enhance that and to be more accepting of scientific, the general scientific community. I'm all in favor of that. So research is uh, something I've always wanted to see. And of course, with the NAS report and the PCAS report, and everybody and their brother talking about, well, you know, the pattern of evidence needs more science, more science. Well, most of us are not opposed to that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're in favor of that. Let's just get somebody who can get funded to do it because I don't believe the research that has yet to be done is going to prove anything different than what we've been saying, but now we'll have the foundation technically to support those opinions. So I hope we grow. I hope I'm still in the business long enough to see it. Yeah. You know, and I plan to be. But in some areas of the country, we're not moving as fast as we need to. It's not that people are being drugged into the new uh, century. It's just that they're not accustomed to doing things different than what they've always done. And I am not here to knock law enforcement. But I can see, I do see, that in some agencies that are more law enforcement related, they are slower to change. Not mm -hmm. all, but some. I think that's going to be a hindrance in some locations. Do you think it, over time the latent print units will end up in crime laboratories and independent crime laboratories? They absolutely should be. Mm -hmm. We encourage that everywhere we go. One of the things our company does is to assist agencies in becoming ISO 17025 accredited. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, we serve as quality managers for some agencies who don't want to hire their own quality manager. And we're saying this is where you got to go. Even if you're not part of a bigger lab, you need to function as if you were. Mm -hmm. and, and at some point, whether it be because of funding coming down from D.C. or wherever, it's going to be required. This is not going away, and it shouldn't go away. So we encourage smaller agencies, if you're a forensic service provider, you need to step up to the plate, mm -hmm. and you need to go ahead and get 17025 or at least 17020 credit. And so we work heavily in that area with agencies that we serve. Because in some states, it's already been passed state legislation that says you must be by a certain time. Some places, like in Texas, for instance, where by 2019, you're going to have to be licensed to practice forensic right. science. Now, it doesn't currently include latent prints, but at some point it will. Uh, so, I mean, that's the trend, and I'm in favor of it. Well, it's good to see that. I appreciate your commitment to it. And, you know, for what it's worth, you know, there's been a lot more of the uh, post-conviction DNA cases that involve problems and things like DNA mixture interpretation and things like that than involve latent prints. Yeah, that's true. You know, one of the things in our company we have been exposed to that I was not when I was in the government service 
We spend a lot of time on post-conviction case review. The Innocence Project is one of our bigger clients. We do a lot of work with them. Very intelligent individuals, very committed to what they do. We may not always agree philosophically on some things, but what it has shown us, our company, and myself certainly included, is there has been a whole other side to it that we were not trained about when I was in government service. So we're trying to make sure that people will understand we don't care who asked the question. The answer is going to be the same. And that's the way all forensic scientists should be taught. And that's kind of part of what I've been trying to do at ASCAD the last several years is to incorporate some lectures dealing with uh, testimony and testimony training because we need to be as transparent as they ask us to be. We have nothing to hide. So that's one of the things you're doing here this week is you did a four-hour workshop on expert testimony or question mark. I'd like to have you talk to me about this whole issue of what does it mean to be an expert witness if you're a forensic scientist. The topic that we had this week, and I had a full class and I was so happy to present it. I always try to have a little fun with my titles and I'd ask them if anybody had seen the paradigm shift. And the reason I chose that title uh, is because expert witness testimony is changing so fast and so frequently as to what you can and can't say, should or should not say, what your agency believes, what your profession believes, what you believe, and it really is, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a shift because a shift to me indicates it started at point A and went to point B. We left point A and we have no clue where we're going to be. There is no point B right now. I was asking my students in the class on uh, Monday afternoon, who are you responsible to? You know, as an expert witness, who are you truly responsible to? And it generated a lot of discussion because as an expert witness, you know, you have a jury, you have a judge you're responsible to, you have the appellate court who's going to read the record, you have the attorneys who are role players, and if you will, in the case, you know, one of them or both of them may have subpoenaed you to testify, but you also have your profession. You know, what am I going to say that if it gets appealed and the court comes out and says this, that, or the other, how's that going to affect all my friends in the industry? So you have a responsibility there, and then you have a final responsibility to yourself to make sure that what you said was fair. I focus as much on that, John, these days as I do anything I teach, and that is that uh, expert witnesses need to be fair. I wasn't taught that way years ago. I was taught that, you know, as a young examiner, I'm talking about way back in the early 70s, you know, I was part of the prosecution team. Defense attorneys were not necessarily good people. So we were, you know, basically trained uh, how to uh, be an adversary to them when we never were, never should have been. Sure. But we were. I'm not happy about some of the things I did back in those days, but I don't teach that way anymore. I finally realized that, hey, we do not have, uh, as we say down home in the Mississippi, we do not have a dog in the race. We're not there to prosecute. We're not there to exonerate. We're there to tell the truth in a way that people believe. I focus my training, and this is what I tried to tell my students on Monday. If you don't have a plan of instruction in your laboratory that is current, then you're failing your people. They said, well, what do you mean by current? And I said, well, for instance, I read a few articles for them that had only come out this year. I said, had anybody else read these articles? Well, no, I, you know, I didn't know that. Well, you need to. Somebody in your shop needs to be responsible for what's coming down through whatever courts that might affect you, whether it be federal courts, state courts, or whatever. 
So I had read a couple articles. One of them, you know, was from uh, Jerry Laporte and Daniel Weiss that was a, just came out last month talking about the use of the phrase reasonable degree of scientific certainty. There was a great article, but, you know, nobody in the room knew about it. We have to train our forensic scientists these days with current information. We can't do it the way we used to do it. That's the shift. If there is a shift, it's not so much the communication factors. It's how we teach them to do that. You know, and I always I was giving them a little example of, uh, you know, what uh, the pyramid of an expert witness might look like. And the first thing on it was fair, credible, uh, knowledgeable, and a good communicator. I spend a lot of time training people how to be com good communicators because, you know, when I finally found out, John, that juries do not vote on the truth, when that finally hit right. me. They vote on the story. They vote on the story they hear that day. You're mm -hmm. exactly right. Mm -hmm. They don't know what ground truth is. Mm -hmm. They only know the story that's told to them by the various witnesses that come to court. So if you have a technical witness, a forensic scientist, if they are not giving that juror the information in a way they can understand and appreciate, then they're not going to be successful. Sure. And I read articles all the time about the CSI effect. And I'm probably certainly going to have some people that disagree with me on this, and that's okay. Disagreement causes us to grow, right? So. Uh, they would say that the CSI effect had a negative impact on the American court system regarding forensic science. I don't agree. You know, I have been interviewing post-trial jurors for over 20 years, you know, and I've interviewed a little over 1,800 of them now. Have you now? I yeah. did not know. It's That's not a, a formal research have, project have, like a university would do. You should capture some of that. Well, I do. I teach it. You teach you it. Yeah, but I don't, I hadn't published it because it never was designed to be a research project. Well, that's a heck of a, a yeah. piece of oh, information. Yeah, oh, it's a lot of it. And what mm -hmm. I teach, and this is the part that's so fascinating for forensic scientists, uh, is that the reason I don't think the CSI effect is a bad thing is because the, the reason there's so many forensic science shows on TV is because, as I told my class on Monday, we got sexy jobs. Right. They love it. They love what we do. If they didn't love what we do, there wouldn't be so many different shows on TV about it. So now I've got a group of jurors who are excited, interested in forensics. Yes, they may not have it correctly in their minds, what we can and can't do, but they're willing to learn. So now I have a group of jurors who are sitting on the front half of their chair waiting for me to teach them. As an expert witness, that's what I have to do. I have mm -hmm. to teach them the truth of the matter, regardless of how the case comes out, because that's not our issue at least they will believe us. I kind of focus on a two-word phrase that seems to fit. For me, it does. I call it forensic trust. Uh, my job as an expert witness is for them to trust the science that I practice and trust me as a practitioner of that science. I think that the forensic scientist needs to think in terms of two stories, right? There's the story of the case, certainly, and how the evidence fits into the case, and that's all very important. And, and certain kinds of evidence, like trace evidence, can be extraordinarily powerful in that regard. The other story is the story of how you did your job, right? Uh, I was talking to Cece Krause yesterday, and she was talking about this idea of, you know, the water bath was at so many degrees, and she got questioned about it. At first, she was reacted very negatively to it. But then she realized this is like, there's somebody whose life is on the line over there. They deserve to know how I got that water bath temperature. So the story of how you do your job and being able to relate that to people, so that the, to the jury and to the court, I think is very, very important. It's, it's part of how you do your job. 
John, I think you, you hit it, I mean, seriously, right on the head. I was reading a uh, court opinion oh, just a few days ago, and I don't have the site with me, but in that opinion, the court had said this, and this case happened to be a latent print examiner, that although they were not going to uh, send the case back for retrial because there was other evidence that was sufficient to support the conviction, had it been the testimony of the latent print examiner alone, they would have sent it back for that very reason, because the examiner was simply trying to give them the results of the examination without teaching them how they came about that answer. Now, we don't have to teach jurors to be experts. That's not going to happen in a 30-minute testimony. But we can explain to them, and yes, they're entitled, I truly believe, to know how we arrived at our conclusions, not just to trust us because we said so, because they understand that we know how to get to the right conclusion, and that's what we did in this case. You, you got it right there. That probably, if I had to say there was a shift, that's probably the biggest one, is sure. that we're going to have to be better expert witnesses in this next generation than we have been mm -hmm. for that very reason, because they're not going to trust us just because of what we said. The other thing about this stuff is that I get the term expert witness to me, I'm not sure if it captures it right. I mean, is that... That sounds like you're going to have competing experts and everything like that. It does. Yeah. And I wish there were a different paradigm for that. Well, I do too. As a matter of fact, we were discussing that very thing on Monday as well. And the fact that judicial vouching, which has been recommended at least under the, the National Commission of Forensic Science, the, you know, it's not working now, but it, they did make a comment in their statement that we should do away with judicial vouching. And that is for the prosecutor to ask, the court to accept their witness as an expert based on all of their credentials. And, of course, the argument was if the judge said so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, based on this information, I would consider this person an expert witness, and you may consider them to be so when they testify. That kind of statement was prejudicial to the defense. So in many places, you don't see judicial vouching anymore. And I'm cool with that. I have no problem with that going away. I do think, and I tell prosecutors this all the time, and I tell defense attorneys the same thing, if you're going to call an expert witness, or even if you don't call them that, you're going to call a forensic witness, let's say, you had better give them a chance to convince the jury to believe them in their credentials. You had better give them that. Mm -hmm. So no stipulation should ever be allowed because the jury is never going to hear that person again. they got to know what to believe or not believe. So judicial vouching doesn't bother me in the least, but I have seen some prosecutors go bananas over the idea they're not going to be allowed to have the judge tell the jury that their witness is a phenomenal expert. You're probably right. Expert witness is a term that's probably had its day. And it's hard, especially in the impression evidence disciplines, because they are qualitative. Your experience, your expertise, your training are definitely relevant to how well you're doing your job. And it's a conundrum. It's, it's a problem to make sure. But it also means that you've got to be able to convey that and the systems that you put together and others with you to say, all right, this is what it means to be a certified examiner have to be credible. Really, they, they do. You're exactly right. You, if you can't defend a sequence of growth, if you cannot defend that for a jury, you don't need to be considered uh, qualified to give an opinion. You know, And I tell... Some of these young examiners that graduate from our academy, they say, why do you harp so much in all of our expert witness training on our training program and being able to explain all the modules of it? I said, because that's all you've got. You don't <laughs> right. have experience. 
So you've got to use the best hand that you've been dealt. And for you, this detailed, intense training program that required you to be tested every week, and if two weeks you fail, you're out. I mean, it's pressure here. If you can't defend that, then why should a jury believe that you know what you're talking about? So we're hard on them for that reason. And that's not going to change anytime soon. I know with FP stat and other quantitative mm -hmm. metrics, I mean, there's going to be more to back up the testimony uh, oh, yeah. other than that. But in the end, those are only going to go so far. The human is always going to need to be in the loop, the judgment of the person, and being able to determine, frankly, whether the algorithm is saying nonsense or not, because that's what computers can do. Yeah, you're exactly right. I have a little bit of concern, I must admit, well, some of the statements, maybe out of PCAST and a couple other places, that they would like to do away with as much subjectivity as they could so it could be more objective, but they almost went too far by saying such that you don't need, you know, that person uh, looking at the results to interpret that. Well, I don't believe that's necessarily going to happen anytime soon, but I'm in favor of us pushing towards that. But in forensics, there's always going to be some expertise is required. If nothing else, just being able to explain it to people. Mm -hmm. Because, they, you know, whatever GC mass spec we're using is not probably, well, I say it's not coming to court. Who knows? Maybe one of these days it will. But currently you still have to have people who have expertise in a field to explain to people that don't have mm -hmm. that expertise in a way that they'll understand it and believe it, regardless of how they vote. doesn't matter. It's do they believe what I've got to say and do they understand it? Sure. If I can't do that, it didn't matter whether it was 50 years ago or now, I'm not going to be a good witness. You have to be able to do that. So that's where we focus, is embracing all the new things that are out into the testimony today. If we could teach our young forensic scientists that, we'll be fine. Well, yeah, we'll yeah absolutely. Well, that's a great note. I have, uh, we could talk for hours, I think, yeah. Ron, and I know you're really, really passionate about these topics and uh, I hope uh, if you do another one of these workshops people will take advantage of them and certainly take advantage of the the great resources that uh, Ron Smith and Associates provides to the community. Thank you so much for being on the program. All right well John you're very kind to invite me. I'd love to come back. There's so much more to, uh, to this subject and the last thing I'd like to say and this is for your managers who might be listening. This is not the responsibility of your rookie examiners to do. This is your responsibility to do for them. If you want your agency to be represented well in a court of law, you have got to commit resources and time to it as the only way it's going to happen. I look forward to hearing successes in that regard. So thank you, John, for inviting me. Thank you so much to the listeners, too, for listening in today. I appreciate your support for the Just Science Podcast. Please make sure to Give us lots of stars and positive reviews on the platform on which you access the podcast. And please tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science so that they can take advantage of the great experts like Ron Smith and the other amazing people that we have on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. In the next episode, Just Science interviews Ramit Plushtik-Masti as she discusses the intricacies of crisis communication in the field of forensic sciences. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.